Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast. Great to have you in. Well, big news about Health Canada uh, approving the 5 to 11 age group for vaccination. The Pfizer vaccine will go to 5 to 11-year-olds soon in the days, maybe the next couple weeks to come. Bruce Arthur broke that story in the Toronto Star. He joins us as he often does. We also talk about what's happening in China right now with a missing WTA player, a now retired WTA player who accused a Chinese government official of sexual assault. We don't know where she is. We can't prove that she's alive even. It's a frightening story and it's got tons of international intrigue we went through this so we've got the muscle memory to recall it from the two michaels vis-a-vis the meng wanzhou uh extradition hearing so we'll cover that aspect as well more talk on masks and kids as well you'll want to hear it it's the toronto today podcast strap in thanks for finding us Let me start here. Um, The federal government will lift the PCR test requirement for short trips across the border. That was bound to happen. We talked about that on the show. I had heard um, you remember that we told you on this show that it was going to be lifted on the U.S. side about two weeks before it actually was. Now, coming back, different story because it, it, it was sort of a, you know, a flattening of of enthusiasm for the announcement. Why? Because travelers would have to bring back a negative COVID-19 test. The irony there, um, and this is actually ironic, this fits with a couple things in, you know, if Alanis were to write a song, this would actually fit. It's not like rain on your wedding day, which isn't ironic, but you would have to, you could bring the test with you from Canada. You could bring, I could test today, have a PCR test, go negative, good for me. I've been doing all the right things, risk mitigating and everything. And then I can cross the border with my test today. I can... Party like I'm Eddie Murphy partying all the time in 1985 tomorrow and Saturday and spend time with crowds and not wear a mask and do this and do that. And all I need to do Sunday morning when I come back is show them the test I took Thursday when I've been behaving like a church mouse uh, hiding in my basement and not seeing anybody. Although I'm not in my basement right now, quite obviously, you can tell that. So uh, it it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense from a, a practical perspective, but many COVID regulations do not. So what will happen soon, end of the month, we hope it gets announced tomorrow, is all travelers um, coming back to Canada, including um, going over. Going over, you don't need one in the first place. There's been some confusion about that. I must have had eight people ask me, like five or six listeners and a couple anecdotally. uh, I'm not saying they're not listeners, but they're friends. And they say, well, so I need a test to get over the U.S. border. No, you don't. And you never did. Well, you haven't since it reopened. But you needed one coming back, and now you will not. So that's good. That's good. And Doug Ford said it on Tuesday. A lot of premiers want to see that. They're going to get that right now. Look, it's going to not change much for people uh, over 72 hours who still need a test. If you're going for a week, you do need it on the way back. And for now, for the time being, I suppose I support that. I know there's people asking me, John writes me, why not drop it entirely for fully vaccinated travelers? They can be infected and bring in infections. That number pales in comparison to the infections being spread in our country by unvaccinated people. He writes, I have a friend in Saskatchewan who makes no secret of the fact that he, his spouse, his kids are all unvaccinated. They go to church, hockey, etc., and have no embarrassment about it at all. And this is where we're going to go here. And this leads me to delve into a conversation I had yesterday with epidemiologist uh, Dr. Jeff Kwong, is that we've got a serious We've got we've got a problem with externals here. And what I mean by that is the vaccines aren't everything, but they're the biggest thing. We've got to lose sight of that. We can't be pivoting and get caught prisoner of the moment in a post vaccination, fully vaccinated universe that most of us are living. in. Most of us are. okay. so that's what did the vaccine do? Severely mitigate risks of hospitalization and death. And those were the worst costs of covid-19. I think we're all following along and in agreement here. And you've had the ability to severely mitigate those risks of hospitalization and death for months, months on end. Okay, so we're seeing across Europe and some of the people that seem to like I don't want to get their jollies from the idea of more lockdowns. They do exist. Like, like, let's not pretend they don't exist. So European Union countries are looking at, well, we're uh, we're going to put this back in place. And here's a lockdown for this and a lockdown for that. But. We're not if, if COVID now is flu-esque, 
And you were not saying you, you couldn't say that. I think we all took patent offense to that in the summer of 2000 and the fall of 2000. There's a lot more. It's a lot more transmissible than the flu. It's flattening a lot more people than the flu. It's having more long term impacts, though the flu does have long term impacts. But it wasn't the flu. But if you're vaccinated, that's the concept. I mean, I don't think we disagree on this. That's the concept is let's let's avoid hospitalization and death and make it flu-esque, if you will. I'm not even sure that fits in the Webster's Dictionary, but I'm using flu-esque the rest of the way. So we don't lock down ever for flu. We never have. You might remember SARS being here. We really didn't do much for SARS. We just said, go about your business, understand that this is here, but we're not going to close workspaces. We're going to maybe try and limit travel. But it was, it was maybe the kind of stuff that when COVID was coming, Last February, like like February of 2020, we thought, well, I wonder if this will happen or that'll happen. I mentioned the border off the top of the hour. Just the concept of closing the border seemed nuts. Like it, it, it felt like we were living in an alternate reality. So then we have to ask, what would we possibly put more restrictions on ourselves for? Who are we protecting? Well, you know who we're protecting. It's one answer. The unvaccinated. Why? Why? We're protecting people who are vulnerable who won't get vaccinated. And, and right now, I know that. That includes kids. And that will lead us to our discussion with, with Bruce at the bottom of the hour that that window has to open for 5 to 11s, for parents to feel better about this, for them to swell with confidence and feel amazing, like those of us with teenage kids started to feel when we could vaccinate our kids. It felt awesome. And I welcome that awesomeness for all of you with little kids. But at this stage... There's not, to me, a measure of, of our society that has where the benefits outweigh the costs for that small a number. We're going to protect unvaccinated people by, by doing what and, and why anyway. This is why I push back on what Dr. Peter Uni recommended almost a week and a half ago. And by the way, cases haven't gotten worse. They've stabilized. Hospitalizations were down last time I checked, and I check pretty often. I live in Durham region with 600,000 people. One person, one has come to hospital with COVID-19 and been and, and been put in an intensive care unit. And that person, this is knowledge that I have that maybe you don't, but I'm going to share it. I won't reveal my source. That person is over 70. That sucks. It's terrible, but it's important. We talk about numbers and data and statistics. So the idea that we're going to go backwards in any context to protect unvaccinated people after they've had the better part of nine to 10 months to vaccinate themselves. No way. It's not happening. It never was like I shouldn't. I've said it before, but I shouldn't even have to say it again. I had this chat with Dr. Jeff Kwong yesterday, and I want to bring this up because we had I, I just wanted clarification on it. This is a very, very smart man, an epidemiologist. But I asked a couple other epidemiologists about the quote that he gave the Toronto Star that I'll revisit in a second. And I'll make the point that I, I, I'm just, I was very confused by the concept of it. And I don't want to reveal the uh, epidemiologist I asked about it, but this was one quote from one of those people. Uh, and that is, I'm going to find it for you so I, I have it. And it is this. He's a pretty smart guy in many regards, but that's an incredibly stupid thing for him to say. I don't want to call it. That's it's really smart. People say stupid things. Hello, I'm right here. Like, obviously, that happens from time to time. But the quote is, I think the masks are just as important as the vaccine. And I want to ask him about that quote yesterday. Give him fair comment to see if there was any attribution needed from the original story, which was an important story to talk about continuing to do what we do and to risk mitigate. Here's how we went. So to come back to the quote, when you say the masks are just as important as the vaccine, um, I asked this question to many epidemiologists a month ago. If we've got 20 people in a room that are vaccinated with no mask, they're much safer than 20. And they stay there for an hour, let's say. Let's say it's average ventilation. 20 people with a vaccine who are fully vaccinated with no mask, they're safer than 20 unvaccinated people with masks on, aren't they? I, I think um, I think they're, you know, both potentially safe right like it depends like i think we know that the vaccines work the thing with the masks are we don't know that they're um that they're worn properly like the people who you mm -hmm. know wear them just covering their mouth and not their nose um and so i think 
you know, like the thing is the masks prevent the, the aerosols from uh, leaving the source, but, and they also present uh, the person from breathing in the virus particles. But it just relies on, there's just more variables there that can go wrong with the mask. If everyone's vaccinated, um, you know, there's like a consistent level, like, you know, they're all protected to, you know, a certain degree. I think, you know, I think it's debatable which one is uh, really? more or less safe. I think they're both pretty safe. So, uh, just potential for more things to go wrong with the mass unvaccinated people. So you wouldn't feel more safer in the room of fully vaccinated people. You're not sure which room you'd feel safer in. Well, me personally, I would feel safer in a room with all fully vaccinated people. But we do know that there mm-hmm. can be breakthrough infections. Mm-hmm. And so I would feel safest if we were all masked and vaccinated. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's hard to argue with that. I think eventually the question got answered and it's the people with the vaccinations, not just the masks and no vaccinations. I mean, I think I I haven't gotten the wrong answer from anybody I've spoken to yet, but it took it took its time to get there. And I thought that conversation was interesting. I wish that had been laid out because my fear of the way the the way the uh, quote read was, well, the mask is just as good as the vaccine and I've got my mask. So do I need to get the vaccine? We can't have anybody thinking that way at this point. And again, if someone's thinking that at this point, then they're the, honestly, honestly, they're the, they're the dumbest of the dumb. And there's there's no point in, in trying to convince them. Like, I think we've stopped our our begging and pleading game, or at least we've dialed it down to a great extent. OK, let me set this up for you. Um, obviously, Beijing Olympics are three months away. Canada's had their issues, obviously, with China. Uh, Meng Wanzhou goes back there. The two Michaels come here. Um, it's quite obvious what was transpiring and why they were being held. It was um, you know, it was hostage diplomacy at its finest, to put it uh, bluntly. So here's where we're at. 16 days ago, there's a WTA veteran tennis player, Peng Shui. Okay, she would never win a Grand Slam, uh, but a good player got as high as 11th overall in the WTA rankings. She accuses a former high-ranking member of the Chinese Communist Party of sexually assaulting her three years ago. But that account has been taken down now. No comments. No one within China can read about this. It's been scrubbed from Chinese search engines. And now no one knows where she is. This is kind of on brand for China. It is. And uh, obviously her safety, that's number one. That's paramount. But it's, it's kind of crisis mode as well. For women's tennis, um, they play their year-end championships uh, for singles and doubles in China every single year. And like uh, we, we can go there with the NBA and talk about everything that uh, Ennis Cantor has been saying about China and the Uyghurs. And we can talk about the other big companies. So where does this all go? It's a it's a really rough story, and it's gaining in prominence. Someone writing about it, uh, joining me now, is Amy Lundy Dahl. She's a tennis journalist, lots of work everywhere. She's got the Tennis Channel Podcast Network going as well. Amy, it's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time for me here in Toronto. Thanks, Greg. It's good to be with you. Good morning. Thank you. Any any holes in what I uh, certainly not on purpose uh, didn't set up in the setup to this particular story and, and anything that's a late developing story. I, I should mention that email that went from a Chinese government official to the WT yesterday, supposedly from her. Not not too many people are buying. That's her. And she's just at home relaxing. Yeah, I would encourage people to go on Twitter or pick up any news story and read the email because it is such a ham-handed attempt at trying to present an email from Peng Shui that is basically saying, don't talk to me anymore, don't reach out to me, I'm fine, I've been resting at home. And immediately the WTA CEO, Steve Simon, came out and said, I don't believe this was actually Mm. written by Peng Shui. And I want to see Peng Shui. I'll feel better when I see her. So please let us know where she is. I want to get to her safety. Is there an immediate call in a second? But is there an immediate call to make 
for the WTA in the days and weeks to come. I mentioned they play their finals event in Shenzhen uh, every single year. Uh, prize money has been very, very significant for that event, and that's good for the tour. That's good for the individual players. Our own Bianca Andreescu was was really hurt at the end of 2019 post the U.S. Open, but she banged up, decided, I'm going to go. Not too many players miss this event. Does the WTA have an immediate call to make, Amy, or a soon-to-be immediate call to say, we're done with China. We won't play there anymore. Yeah, I mean, here's the deal. China and the WTA are partners. And the WTA relies on China for a huge chunk of its revenue. And they've arguably overinvested in China and put too many tournaments there, but the money was good. Now they've got this situation where it's a human rights issue and there's a missing player. So immediately the WTA had a choice to make and they stepped up and they are threatening to pull the plug on all their business in China. And a lot of people are applauding the WTA saying, unlike the NBA's practices, this was the right thing to do. It really is a David and Goliath situation Mm. though, because China is a superpower with billions of people, and the WTA is a small U.S.-based tour with under 500 employees. So it's a remarkable story. Amy Lundy-Dahl is joining us on uh, Toronto today. She's bringing us uh, context for this remarkable story on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. It's a little different. I wonder if you think it's a little different in an individual sport. Is it? Is it? Does it make it easier to speak out? Tennis has had its champions, right? The uh, in terms of human rights, whether it's been the Williams sisters, whether it's been Arthur Ashe, Billie Jean King. I, I, I get sometimes it's harder to do in a team sport. I mentioned Ennis Cantor doing it, who's saying, "Where's all my NBA brethren talking about China? Where is LeBron James? Where is Kevin Durant?" It's fine to, you know, Black Lives Matter. Sure. This slogan, sure. But when it comes to Chinese human rights uh, and look at the trouble Daryl Morey got in, is it harder or easier for an individual star in a sport like tennis to say something? To be honest, I don't think it's about individual versus team. I think it's about men versus women. And the WTA is a tour and a sport that is for women. And this is an issue about a sexual assault, mm-hmm. essentially, allegedly. And if the WTA can't stand up for women, then who are they? And to their credit, so far they are. Do you expect, in, in that context, do you expect more women? Naomi Osaka put a post out about it on Instagram. Some people are saying, where are some of the other top players? I think it's a fair question to say, does Serena Williams have a comment on this? Does does Li Na, who played for China, played Fed Cup for China, does she have a comment on this? Do we need to hear from some of these top women questioning, doing exactly what the head of the WTA did yesterday and questioning what's going on here? Yeah, and I think the WTA, and and it looks like they have help from the ATP as well, who also issued a supportive statement. Um, I think that they'll get their message together. But if I were the the WTA and Steve Simon, the first call I would make would be to the U.S. State Department Mm -hmm. and talk talk diplomacy, like how are we going to get out of this situation? How are we going to find this girl? And then I would call Adam Silver of the NBA, who has dealt with China, and and see what you can learn from him about his dealings. Maybe he has some regrets about some of the controversies, but start gathering information and start getting help from everywhere you can to get out of this situation. I wonder if you see it like I do, whether our opinions are in concert here already the WTA has done more of a call out than than anything the NBA has done. Now, maybe they have more reason and inspiration to one of their own. One of their own players is missing. I mean, I think of an I think we agree if an NBA player suddenly went missing, a Chinese born NBA player went missing. Maybe they say something. But already to me, the WTA has done more than the NBA has on a public front. Yes. And it's amazing because they have more to lose. Right. Their, their revenues from China account for a bigger chunk of their total revenues than the NBA's. I mean, I read in the New York Times, Christopher Clary wrote a great piece um, that Adam Silver said that the revenues from China amounted to hundreds of millions of dollars, but the NBA's revenues are in the billions, yeah. like $10 billion. So it's just, 
it's kind of like, well, okay, you run afoul of China, so what? It's still just a small part. But for the WTA, the Asian revenue, especially from China, it's a huge chunk, Greg. So they're Mm. really on the line here. They're putting themselves out there. And it's a very dangerous and sticky situation. I got about a minute here. Do you outside of tennis and tennis, obviously not a winter Olympic sport, but do you have that feeling if I wouldn't say impending doom, but it's just it's it's a hold your nose feeling when it comes to the Winter Olympics being there. I I think we've got a weird year coming up with the Winter Olympics in China and the World Cup uh, in the World Cup of men's soccer in Qatar in November. It's. It's it's nothing anybody wants to see, and yet we all like sports, and we want to watch these great athletes compete, but we have a pit in our stomach about it, don't we? Yeah, it's very uncomfortable. In fact, it crossed my mind yesterday, do I sit my family, my children down and watch the Olympics this year? But it's one of those sports stories that crosses over into the news and broader culture because mm. Here in the States, the Biden administration is there are some reports that we're going to be doing a a diplomatic boycott, meaning the athletes are free to go. U.S. athletes are free to go and compete. But U.S. representatives in in official capacity, the president, first lady, we won't be in Beijing because of the human rights issues. Yeah. And I think Canada's got that call to make also with with everything that's recently happened with uh, the Huawei company, everything else. Thank you for giving the story context. It's great to make your acquaintance. I hope we I hope we have a great resolution and a safe resolution to this story. But um, we'd love to have you back to update us as well with your perspective and opinion on it. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Craig. Have a good day. You bet. Amy Lundy Dahl uh, joining me. You can find her on Twitter at Amy Lundy Dahl. Bruce Arthur from the uh, Toronto Star joins. We just had Amy Lundy Dahl on talking about uh, Shing Pai. I, I don't know where this goes in the next few days, and but we've got some we got some muscle memory in Canada from understanding just from the two Michaels and the Meng Wanzhou arrest alone about how some of this works, maybe more than the rest of the sports world does. It's a truly remarkable story that that it's happening two and a half months before the Olympics in Beijing makes it all the more remarkable. The fact that a a major tennis star, that a major sports star, has been disappeared from all appearances uh, because of a sexual assault allegation against a powerful Chinese politician. You're right that a lot of countries in the world should probably be banned from an Olympics that takes human rights really seriously. Uh, that takes like the idea of even democracy halfway seriously, although I don't think the IOC has ever claimed to that. But human rights has always been mm. a part of it. I mean, part of the problem with that is, I mean, we could see in our lifetimes the United States falling into that 40-country category. <laughs> and But part of it is the IOC isn't about human rights. The IOC is about getting as many countries into the pot as possible because that maximizes your broadcast revenues and all other revenues and your money. And so... That's why they held an Olympics in Sochi, Russia in 2014. That's why they gave the Olympics back to Beijing in 2022, although the only other choice at the time was Kazakhstan. And you're right. I think people don't understand the depth of the potential situation in terms of China and human rights and a lack of flexibility thereof. When I asked David Shoemaker, the CEO of the Canadian Olympic Committee, what he would advise athletes that were going to Beijing that would speak out and on any sensitive topic to the Chinese. He said, well, 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 we'll educate them. We'll make sure they know about what happened in Hong Kong and the, and the law they passed in Hong Kong. The law they passed in Hong Kong is essentially, if you speak out against the government, you can be arrested. That's what we're sending to Beijing uh, yeah. in two and a half months. Well, and and think about the a, a lot of athletes, Bruce, you know this, uh, from uh, both of us having our, our feet uh, firmly in that world is, they're pretty laser focused. They're not paying attention. And even if they are, they don't. Connor McDavid won't tell you which way the wind's blowing. I mean, that's just how it is. And, I, and, and sit, neither will Sidney Crosby. And sometimes I don't blame him. You're seeing these call outs from Ennis Cantor in the NBA right now going, where is LeBron James? Where is Kevin Durant? Well, get Durant. Well, they probably look at what happened to Daryl Morey, a pretty high profile executive in the league. And they say, I don't want that to be me. I mean, no one's infallible. LeBron James cannot dig deep on China and have it not affect his bottom line. And he knows that. Well, that's the problem, is that if you're worried about the illiberalism of the Chinese regime, and again, like there, there are, you can look at the United States and find all kinds of problems which aren't unbelievably different in some, in some respects. 
But uh, in terms of China, I, I don't know if people realize what, what they're capable of. <clears throat> like, again, mm. the, 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 re- the release basically from the front that was sent to the WTA, right, uh, that purported to be from Shanghai, it was so clumsy. It was not plausible in the least. And the WTA shot back and said, we don't believe this is you. Like, they almost need proof of life at this point, like Shen Pai holding a newspaper. Um, but the fact that China would send something that thin, presumably they did, that, they, that they're not even trying to kind of treat this as a crisis on any, on any way that we recognize. Like, this isn't a crisis for China. They're just doing what they do. And again, Shen Pai is a three-time Olympian. She's yeah. a three-time Olympian, and the Olympics is in two and a half months. She's not going to compete in there. But, like, the fact that the IOC is this supine, that they have barely – that they said, we have been reassured by the reassurances that we've received that she's okay. What reassurances? This is a significant issue. And, the, and where you get a problem significantly yeah. for the International Olympic Committee is – okay, do we actually care about protecting athletes or not? Iran has been a problem on this regard. What if China becomes a problem in this way? That's one. And two, for the rest of us, I think the two Michaels probably touch Canada, that we need to figure out our relationship with China maybe a little more seriously than we have, and we're already a fair ways in. We're already a fair ways in. Yeah, Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star joining us. One more on this. Like, yeah, it's almost gallows humor to, like, I saw the email yesterday, and I'm thinking, the at the top, hello everyone, this is Peng Shui, was a little like from the desk of like nobody writes an email like that anymore. <laughs> nobody and if it's from your account, you don't need to explain to me. Hello everyone, this is Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star. Yeah. I promise. Of course it is. Who else would it be? But um you know, my wife's going to the Olympics, you're going to the Olympics. I asked her this a couple of weeks ago. I go, if they hadn't resolved Meng Wangzhou and the two Michaels, um, she's she's got some nerves already about going. You probably do also. She said I'd be infinitely more nervous if they hadn't resolved that and the two Michaels were still there. Is that is that does that land for you the same way? I don't feel terribly nervous about it, if only because I've done one one Olympics in Beijing already, although it was very different circumstances in a number of ways. But two, I do think that on with the global and this is what happened in two thousand eight, with the global spotlight on them, China changed their behavior. Like in 2008, they basically took half the cars off the road and shut down most of the industrial manufacturing in Beijing so that they could get rid of the smog during the games. Like they, they didn't arrest a journalist then. They did arrest protesters, but not journalists. I think they're, and this may be naive, I do think that under the auspices of the deal with the International Olympic Committee, which China, I think, wants to keep reasonable relations with, mm. I don't think they're going to arrest journalists who write critically about China at the Olympics. I think that would just create so many problems for both that it would be too much. But again, I'm the one who just talked about we maybe need to <laughs> recalculate what the regime is capable of. This is this is all complicated stuff. I think we're going to go. I think we're going to be kept in a box. I don't think we're going to get to have any – like we're basically going to be allowed to cover the games and that's it. And there mm. probably will be firewall issues. They'll probably be – access to internet will be blocked. There are some – uh, organizations taking blank laptops because they think it's going to be hacked by the Chinese, all this stuff. Um, and I think we're going to get out of there fine. But I have probably, I'm probably more worried about this than I was, say, about going to Tokyo even. You're, you're, you're t- when you get there, your TikTok game is going to suffer. I'm not sure you can, you can really get on there and do what, you know, do all those dances and everything. I think that's, that's a problem. Uh, you break the story wide open yesterday. Health Canada is going to approve Pfizer for kids tomorrow, um, but th- but shots won't be in arms potentially over the weekend. We've seen a, a wide variation of dates. What's the best? What's the best game plan you could give anxious, eager, confident, happy parents now about a about a timeline? I know it's it's we're throwing darts at a dartboard, but you, you're the best dart thrower to do this. Yeah, as someone who has a six-year-old and a ten-year-old, and two two vaccinated twelve-year-olds, I, I will be thrilled to know what the exact timeline is. I know that public health units are ready because I've t- I've checked in. I I know that people who have looked at the planning for the province think that it's pretty good. Actually, this time, let's hope that's true. Mm-hmm. I asked someone who had pretty good understanding of the situation. What are we looking at if this is a Friday? Are we looking at seven to ten days? Are we looking at ten to fourteen days until the vaccines? are in arms 10 to 14 is probably that's probably the range where needles are starting to get in arms maybe a little bit sooner it's before the end of the month 
and it's November 18th today. So this is going to, it's, it, I wrote it in the piece, this feels like it's taken forever, but it really hasn't. On a global scale, Canada's going to be one of the first five nations on earth to be vaccinating five to 11-year-olds. We are doing really well. And it's going to feel like forever until this actually happens. There'll be a crush if, there's, if history's any indication when we actually open up a reservation system and parents do this. Um, but this is going to happen. It's going to happen within the next two weeks. We're going to start. And then this province, I think, I think, I hope, is in a good position to rapidly vaccinate an enormous number of kids between 5 and 11. Now, that said, look, sounds like it's going to be an eight-week interval between doses. And the good news there is that the first dose has been shown in the FDA uh, data that they showed that it's been pretty good on symptomatic infection for kids. Um, this is a good vaccine. The safety signals are really high and it's going to happen fast. Um, the pharmacy issue with the COVID test. Now, I see a new poll this morning that says 76% of uh, Ontarians are in support of it. Usually, Bruce, when I align with most people, I'm like, what am I doing wrong here? I don't want to be in the I, I don't want to be in the majority of this poll here. <laughs> but I'm I'm very much in the minority when it comes to a lot of the doctors and a lot of the, the media that cover this. I want people to get tested. I want it to be convenient. I think there's a way to do this. We were testing asymptomatic people to visit long-term care homes and hospitals and loved ones in the fall. And you know, and I know anyone can sneak past a screening. Anyone can check. No, no, no. 12 boxes in a row, whether they've got a cough or cold or not. I, I, I don't want an 82-year-old feeling anxious about going to a hospital or a, or a pop-up clinic to get a test. But, but I'm, I'm in the minority here among the experts, it feels like. I, I'm of two minds of this. Like, I, I do think that there was probably a better way to do this. I think they're selling it on the basis of equity and access, except that when they did uh, vaccines and pharmacies in the last wave, um, and they're right back in the spring, there was a huge desert of pharmacies in the northwest corner of Toronto. It was not an equity issue at right. all. Um, so uh, maybe they fixed that. Maybe that's not going to be an issue this time. I do think that. You could have done, you could have kept mass testing centers. I don't think that would have been that difficult because we had an infrastructure that can be rebuilt. I think you could have done this in a way with pop-ups that was more, just as convenient and addressed the equity issue and didn't put symptomatic, highly infectious COVID, uh, COVID cases in a situation where they have to take off their mask. And what, I mean, you've, you've been to a pharmacy. Yeah, yeah. They're not big. Like there's a lot of people crowded around the desk quite often, and a lot of them are old and a lot of them are sick. I worry that this could be a problem. I think optically, at the very least, it's a problem. Um, in terms of the epidemiology, I feel like they just took the easiest possible solution, and maybe it's the best one, but it just doesn't look like it right now. Yeah, I saw Dr. Bogus say, I wish we could do more of it outside and give give the American states credit, Democrat and Republican. They figured out where to, where and when and how to do the drive-ins, and we haven't done that very well. I know it's yeah. Canada, but we we maybe we don't want to have people out there testing in the middle of January. I got it, and it's easier to do in Arizona and Utah, but we didn't even try it in the summer and fall to do a lot of the drive-in clinics. We didn't. Yeah, I actually went to a driving clinic in Prince Edward County. Worked great, worked fabulous, yeah. super in, super out, as safe as you could make the, the process. Mm. Now, I know that that requires space. It was in like the parking lot of an arena. I know that it's, it's not something that just pops up out of nowhere. But one thing with this province, they, they kind of vary between doing things that have like a durability in terms of the structure of how to deal with this disease and the ones where they kind of pretend like this isn't going to be a problem for them and they can just clap their hands of it, like trying to get rid of the vaccine passport. You know what? Maybe don't give a date on that yet. Maybe we see how it goes. Versus if you do this, if you have a contract with the pharmacists, that's something that can be relatively durable depending on the volume of testing required. Uh, this is all yeah. – they're going to do a technical briefing on the testing thing this mm. morning. We'll see if it actually sounds like a deal, like a deal mm. that would work. Um, uh, the one thing I, I would say is that this province, I mean, all of us want to put this behind us as soon as we can. All of us. I don't want to write about a pandemic anymore. I've been doing it for two years. I'm sick of it. But when you look at the whole of this, we're not in charge of when this virus goes away or gets down to a level through the winter that we mm. can live with. Right. There's a, over a million unvaccinated Ontarians still walking around. Um, this is going to last a little bit longer and we may yeah. have lockdowns between now and the spring. So uh, the least I can ask of the province 
is address this as best you can and better than you have in the past. Let's hope to do that. Hope so. Uh, read him in the Toronto Star. Broke the story yesterday. Thanks, uh, Bruce Arthur. Great stuff. Have, uh, have a great weekend. You too, Brady. Let me give you a couple quick ones. Let me arm you with uh, some info here on uh, masks and kids, because what we were talking about struck a nerve. I'm glad it is. They're changing the policy in Belgium right now to make it required from age 10 and up in Belgium to decide if students must mask at school. And what if we did that? What if we got masks of four and five year olds in fully vaccinated households? What a concept. Someone else brings up. And it's so true. Why? Why is our mask policy identical, identical to last year at this time in elementary schools when no one was vaccinated? And as I look up the uh, brilliant Jennifer Kwan, I, I, sometimes I look up to see where we are year by year. And last year on November 17th, yesterday in 2020, last year, 1,249 new cases, 4.7% positivity, 529 people hospitalized. We've got about 23%, 22, 23% of people hospitalized now that were there last year. And yeah, the vast majority of them are uh, unvaccinated individuals. So um, look, I'm on this and uh, and I'm, I'm not going to stop. Someone equally tenacious about the things that she cares about uh, is our friend, Associate Professor, University of Ontario Institute of Technology, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. It's great to have you on. I don't think it's it's been a while. It's been a year or so. No, it hasn't. Maybe a month. <laughs> yeah, maybe a few weeks. <laughs> so it's always good talking to you, Greg. What do you, do you have an anecdotal thought on masks on kids in schools? Like, I don't I don't they work. And, and there's there's a limit of transmission. But something that you've documented is way more important that we put on these flimsy blue masks. I do to go into my father in law's long term care. I'm like, What's more dangerous, me doing that or or a five-year-old in a vaccinated household without a mask? I know the answer. You probably do also. Oh, God, I am not touching that topic. Why no not? way. Why not? <laughs> hey, because it's not my area. I do not know. I, no, not touching it. Not doing it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. about long-term care all day, every yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 no. but you've got opinions. <laughs> you've got opinions on Shoppers Drug Mart. I asked Bruce Arthur about that last hour. So tell me why I'm not right about the idea that I want people to get tested. I want people to go to a comfortable environment that's convenient for them. Otherwise, I don't think they do it. And we don't live in a panacea that, you know, there's going to be some magical, uh, you know, carpet ride that will take, you know, an 80 year old widow, let's say, to a, a hospital where they don't want to go or a mass testing site where they don't want to go. They want to go to shoppers and talk to the pharmacist, they see three times a week. Tell me why that's a bad thing. Well, I don't know if that's actually true. I mean, I'd much prefer to go to an isolated testing center where I'm not potentially infecting other people. I mean, for me, my concern is always not potentially endangering other people. If I know that I might have COVID, the last thing I want to do is go into a pharmacy where there are very you know, significantly older individuals getting their prescriptions, immunocompromised individuals getting their prescriptions. I would not I personally would not feel comfortable potentially endangering people. And I've been in those rooms to get the flu shot. And yeah. they're tiny little rooms. There are no windows. I don't know if they're doing anything with filters and, and you know, trying to manage the air quality. And then you're going to take down your mask, potentially cough, whatever it is, if you're symptomatic. And then two minutes later, a senior's going to go in there to get a flu shot. No, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that. Personally, no way. But aren't you going into a small room at a mass testing center with an airborne virus and someone was in there 10 minutes earlier for a test that, that they had scheduled? But they're only there because they are potentially symptomatic. I'm not potentially endangering people who are just there getting medication for cancer, medication for diabetes, whatever it may be, mm. sending out a package in the post office because you can't do it anywhere else. I mean, that's my fear. I just I don't want to potentially endanger people that don't need to be endangered. I would much rather it all in isolated, specialized facilities with, you know, professional healthcare workers who have been trained to do this properly and are not rushed to then go help other mm. seniors and to go help other people with medications and this and that. I just personally don't think it's a good idea. I think it's fair. I certainly see both sides of it. I, I just know that we had asymptomatic testing for people to go visit long-term care last year and you'd make an appointment, you'd go in. And um, my anecdotal experience is, is that it, it just, it went kind of flawlessly and it, we're not going to have 18 people lined up in the, in the aisles where people buy bread and bread and eggs, uh, hacking and wheezing and about to pass out from COVID. We're not going to have that. Well, you'd hope not. Who well, knows, I'd hope right? not. <laughs> you'd hope not. 
not, but who knows? And that's, that's, the, are mm. we prepared to take that risk is the, I guess is the, the issue that a lot of people don't feel comfortable with. So this was a little too quiet and I want you to be able to amplify it. Uh, I see the headline on pressprogress.ca. Doug Ford uh. is about to let for-profit long-term care companies raise prices on private rooms. So it's one thing to project, you know, we're going to, we're going to have more of these hours of care. We're going to do this. We're building new buildings. And, and as we know, no, uh, you know, I, I hate saying this, but it's the cold hard truth. Most of the people in long-term care right now won't benefit from any increase in hours and any increase in funding in the long term. But where people will feel it is a price raise on private rooms at the for-profit long-term care. Like how much is enough? I mean, you, you literally, it's just kicking these poor seniors while they're down. It is so horrible. And remember the fact that the majority of the old homes, the outdated homes that have these three to four person shared ward rooms are indeed for profit. So, you know, you, you are inadvertently benefiting these for profit bad actors who were shown to have, you know, when factoring in facility design, community transmission, and several other factors, in addition to omitting the 10 homes with the worst death rates, for-profit homes still had by and far more COVID-19 deaths compared to nonprofit and municipal homes. So the homes with the most shared rooms are now going to be able to, you know, hike their premium costs so that they can, you know, send the message that, okay, if you want safety, because, you know, we knew that these shared rooms weren't safe, you've got to pay more for it. Do so, you, of course, it will inadvertently benefit them, which is atrocious. Um, and I just don't understand why we are tearing long-term care safety. We all learned so terribly that, you know, shared rooms are not safe in the context right. of an airborne illness. And we know that even with seasonal rates of flu, we know individuals in shared rooms, uh, it's very dangerous for them in these facilities because flu can be deadly for a lot of seniors. So this has been known. So why are we charging more for safer rooms? I mean, that, that's ludicrous. I don't think we should be doing that. You're not, and furthermore, we didn't give people the choice to be in these rooms during the pandemic because we saw how bad it was. So we only, we, we kept it down to two and we let these for-profit actors charge the premiums for safety. It's disgusting. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, our guest, Toronto Today uh, with Greg Brady on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. What kind of ironclad guarantee can we get, can the province get, can voters get from either the NDP or the Liberals that they won't just say, well, we didn't put it in, but there's not much we can do to change it right now? Well, I know the NDP, I mean, at least, the, you know, I've spoken to a lot of the MPPs, uh, spoken to Andrea. I know that they want the kinds of reform that certainly I want and certainly a lot of the experts in the area are calling for. I haven't really heard the Liberals' position yet, um, so that I, I can't really speak to. I'd like to hear more about what, where they stand on, you know, really phasing out for-profit long-term care. And, and right now what we're seeing, unfortunately, is that this government is going out of their way and giving contracts, new bed licenses and new you know, redevelopment contracts to some of the very worst documented bad actors during COVID. I'm talking the military homes. Remember, mm -hmm. four out of the five military homes in that initial report, which shocked the nation, were for-profit. Each and every one of those chains are being provided millions in dollars of redevelopment funds to continue for another generation of this level of care, which we saw led to almost 4,000 seniors dying. It's atrocious. I don't think people realize that this is secretly happening. Um, in addition to the fact that the new bill, the new Long-Term Care Act that Minister Phillips you know, um, pushed out a couple weeks ago, is a very interesting change in the preamble, whereas before, and this was hard fought by uh, groups like the Ontario Healthcare Coalition, they had a, a, a very clear statement in the preamble that we should prioritize um, nonprofit delivery, right? Because right. we all have the evidence right. on this, well before the pandemic. And they changed that conveniently to say mission-driven. And mission-driven, unfortunately, came out of the Long-Term Care Commission final report where they said, okay, we can take, we, they suggested, which I disagree with, a P3 structure where you can take money from the private industry, but they shouldn't operate, so to speak, the, the homes. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, which is a very, um, what we know of P3s, they're not cost efficient. They end up costing far more. And when you look at the Brampton Hospital, which has resulted in numerous lawsuits because of what happened there, these don't work. Right? It's not a good idea. 
What is what is the waiting list right now for LTC beds? I see this number quoted thirty eight thousand five hundred. Yeah, it's bad. That but, but has it increased in the last year and a half, or have people said no, no, no? That's if we if another scenario happens like this, and there's a government, regardless of party affiliation, that's this unprepared, I, I can't take that chance. I'll I'll go with an in home care specialist. I'll do this. I know many families can't do that, but many can't afford long term care. So w- what's the number at? Well, I know many are trying. We don't have the exact number right now, but I know that many are, are have been trying to keep their loved ones at home. And I know yeah. how difficult it's been for them because people don't realize how expensive it is to hire decent private care. Unfortunately, the provided allotments of home care is um, is not <laughs> up to par. I hear night home care nightmare stories all the time, and there's just never enough or they don't come on time, or they're not properly trained or skilled. And we've heard horror stories from, you know, agencies that have been, you know, uh, fudging their documents for their workers, and they're not actually Mm. trained in any some sort of, you know, qualifications to work in these settings. So it's a big problem. It's kind of the, it's the wild, wild west of, you know, privatized um, care. And unfortunately, we see that you either have the money to pay for decent quality home care, or you Mm. don't. And it ends up being, you know, two-tiered home care. And most people can't afford it. So that's why, whether we like it or not, and whether people think, and I hear this all the time on Twitter, I'm never going to put my loved one in a long-term care home. Yeah, we all say that. You don't, you don't know, you don't know until you you get there. And, and, and when, and when, yeah. Yeah. And when all the boxes align and you have, you have no choice, you're doing it. There's many things. It's, it's, it's so easy to talk the talk until it's staring you right in the face. Yeah. And then, you know, like families don't need the additional guilt for being in a situation where, you know, because the government doesn't provide appropriate home care and lets these seniors age in place appropriately, then the families feel like they've let down and failed their loved ones. And that's that's another terrible layer of of putting that guilt Uh, on families when they didn't fail. There's nothing they could have done. What do you expect these families to do? Quit their jobs and not pay their mortgages so they can stay home and provide 24 seven care. I mean, give me a break. It's not possible. Unless you plan on doing a disability benefit and letting people actually stay at home and provide like a caregiver benefit. That would be ideal. People would do that. But, you know, we're not hearing any some sort of talk around that. I I, got to roll. I know you love when we stray off topic. Um, Camila Cabello or Shawn Mendes, who broke up with who? No, never mind. You don't have to. I think he's going to be just fine. I'm sorry. I thought she was just using him for he was popular before she was. I'm sorry going to be just that fine. you think so you know, i think they're both going to be i don't know okay he's a good yeah. good pickering kid good family nuclear good family that's like right him. that's right I do like him all right and <laughs> and home, Sean. <laughs> and, and patriots cover against the falcons i'm, I'm throwing a lot at you I'll, I'll i'll leave you alone next time we'll just we'll we'll, we'll stay in our lane next time since that's the preference <laughs> love having you on thanks you too bye buddy Okay, let's go right to him. Uh, Chandy John is a, a professor of pediatrics at the Indiana University School of Medicine, a pediatric ID doc. He's traveled all over the world, knows his viruses, knows his infectious diseases. It's great to have you on. I know kids have been vaccinated for about two weeks now in the United States. No talk about a mandate in the vast majority of states. I, I'm not for that. I don't know where you lay in on this particular topic, but feel free to go and, and start and we'll go there. Right. I think that it's too early for a mandate right now so that there are a number of parents who are in a we'd like to see what happens mode. Mm -hmm. Like they're not irrevocably um, opposed. They just kind of want a little more data that when millions of kids are vaccinated, they're still doing well. And I think that data will come all the All the data from the trials has been great. There's been no uh, signal of increased adverse events after the first rollout of the vaccine. So I'm very confident that this vaccine is a safe vaccine. But for parents who want to see a little bit more, I feel like, well, they will see in a little bit. So I think that, frankly, this is a disease that's caused a lot of um, illness and um, and far too many deaths in children. And so that eventually I think it needs to be mandated like we mandate many other vaccines. But I think that doing that out of the gate would maybe push some people from hesitant to oppose when that doesn't need to happen. It's, so I think that, you know, let's start with getting it out there, roll it out, have millions of kids be vaccinated and then think about that. It's so interesting you say that. Uh, be, and I wasn't planning on going down this route, but when you say that, I remember having a conversation with somebody early days, and, and I, I don't have, I've got two older kids, they're both teenagers, they've both been vaccinated, 
But someone said, do you think it'll be mandated? And I said, well, I I would think so by, say, the fall of 2022. But you just can't look at all the real world data we had before any of us adults dealt with any vaccine mandates, any of university students, any high school students. We had seven, eight months of, um, you know, of runway behind us to look back on and go. Things went pretty well. They made our communities and our households safer. Right now, parents of a six-year-old, they don't have that. So so they, they, they got to make it for their own reasons and not feel that kind of heat and pressure. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, with the climate as it is, like the last thing you want to do is, is change people from people that are honestly questioning to just feeling like they've been railroaded into something. So I feel like there's definitely room now to get the people that are keen on vaccination vaccinated, to get the hesitant on board, which I think they will be, uh, because I think this is going to be a very safe and effective vaccine. Uh, and then, yeah, exactly, as you say, time for mandates down the road when there's plenty of population-based data to say this is what it did and this is how safe it is and therefore and these are the things we can avoid and therefore that's why we need a man uh dr chandy john is our guest global news radio 640 toronto joining us from indiana university he's a pediatric id doctor let me ask you about masks um probably i i don't know that i've shifted maybe evolved from the last time we talked um, naturally, every parent says, well, I want them off my kids. As-. Most parents, I shouldn't say that. Most parents say, I want them off my kids as soon as possible. My kids are teenagers. They're running out of time. I don't think it's right now. I don't think it's that moment. But I do think there's a lot more conversation, isn't there, about off-ramps for fully vaccinated kids. I think even here in Canada, we don't have this 5 to 11 window yet, Dr. John. So we need to open up the window, give people plenty of time to get vaccinated. But then the conversation has to shift. I'm sure you hear from parents who say, well, I if I get my kid fully vaccinated, the mask will come off eventually in in some close congregate settings. It's it's a hard conversation, isn't it? Yeah, it is tough. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing right now um, in the northern states, in the United States, uh, including Indiana, is a big spike in COVID-19 cases. And most people think that's because we are it's getting colder and people are going more indoors and um, in a lot of the states the uptake on mask use has not been great uh, and so we're mm-hmm. seeing big big spikes michigan's having that like michigan now leads the nation in cases of covid 19 and in fact at university of michigan our alma mater there's also an outbreak of the flu which is like another problem um that we didn't have much flu last year, and so the flu outbreak this year could be really bad. So I'm just going to put in a plug, like, get your COVID vaccine, yeah. get your flu vaccine. But but both of those can be substantially reduced by mask wearing. Uh, and so I think that the there are two conversations here. The first conversation is about what's happening right now, and I really want to encourage people when they're in there's especially crowded indoor settings and not well ventilated to wear a mask. I can't overemphasize how important that is in trying to avoid a, a sort of twindemic of both flu and COVID-19. Um, on the school side, I think kind of hopefully when we're past this wave and we get a critical mass of kids uh, 5 to 11 vaccinated or 5 and above, really, because it goes all the way to, mm-hmm. uh, to high school kids, um, then we can talk about, you know, at what point can we, can we uh, you know, stop the mask wearing. Um, but unfortunately, right now, that's, uh, you know, wintertime and people in northern states, people eating more hours and poorly ventilated uh, areas. Uh, now is not the time that that will happen. But that's been one of the big goals of vaccination for kids is, you know, beyond preventing deaths and having them go to the hospital is to just get them back to a more, you know, sane life where they're not constantly having to do a bunch of things to prevent COVID-19, including wearing masks if they don't need to wear masks. Dr. Chandy John, our guest on Toronto Today with Greg Brady on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Last thing for you, you see um, you see kids that are COVID positive. You see sick kids. I know you you mentioned on your uh, on your social media, there's a, a children's hospital called Riley Children's Hospital in downtown. Beautiful downtown Indianapolis, by the way. I love downtown. I've been there for the Final Four a couple of times. I love downtown Indianapolis. But oh, awesome. I lo- awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love good. Indiana. But I, I, would, I, I think you can bring us the best concepts because you must roll your eyes a little bit. You, you, you're right to roll your eyes at people who say, well, kids don't get sick from COVID. But you'd probably also roll your eyes and think, um, you know, they don't <laughs> – like we're not dealing with ma- – it's not, it's not what it does to other people. They are – 
the least vulnerable of our population to a bad outcome from COVID. What are you seeing? And, and is what you're seeing absolutely kids from unvaccinated households are right now in the last few months are running into far more struggles than kids from vaccinated households. How do, how do you view what you see on a, on a weekly biweekly basis with sick kids? Yeah. So I think it's, you know, it's only honest and right to say up front that the numbers in kids are massively less than they are in adults, but um, uh, on the other hand, the numbers were high enough in the last spike to completely overwhelm the capacity of many, many children's hospitals. We have so many fewer children's hospitals than uh, hospitals for adults and COVID-19 is a complex disease when it gets severe. Those kids need to come to places with specialists you know, in ICU in particular and infectious disease, et cetera. So we were getting a lot of these kids overwhelmed uh, almost exclusively at Riley from uh, uh, households that were not vaccinated. Uh, many of them were teens that could have been vaccinated. So um, seeing these very sick kids, and it was just very, I mean, fortunately, most of them survived. Death is a, a, a quite rare event. There's been almost 700 deaths, so it's not like it's a trivial thing. Mm-hmm. 700 children that died that didn't, you know, like it could have been prevented. But, um, but you know, it's exponentially higher. The number of hospitalizations is very hard to accurately calculate, but probably at least 50,000 hospitalizations. Um, and the vast majority of those uh, are in uh, kids who, uh, whose families have not been vaccinated. The ones who go to the ICU, it's almost all of them at Riley have been in kids whose families and the child themselves have not been uh, vaccinated. And so, yeah, it's very striking to see. And people, you know, 50,000 hospitalizations, that's 50,000 kids going into the hospital. That's a traumatic event for any parent, you know, as you know, as a yeah. parent. Um, and some of the kids that go in, are kids whose households have been vaccinated, but the kids themselves couldn't be vaccinated. Uh, so parents have done everything they could, and then they're taking this child in, and people say, oh, it's only kids with underlying medical conditions. Well, a lot of kids have underlying medical Yeah, they do, yeah. I just want to say, like, their children, like everybody else, and should not be put at risk. But um, 30 to 40% of kids who come into the hospital uh, don't have underlying medical conditions. So now you're a, a parent whose child has been healthy all along, and suddenly your child get one of my friends in Minnesota had this happen to them. Their child got sick. It was not quite old enough to get vaccinated. They were like on the cusp of 12. Um, and this was very traumatic for her. She's like, I've never had this experience. I mean, fortunately, he did well, but, you know, he was in the hospital for five days on oxygen, completely on himself. So these are very disruptive, traumatic events for kids and their families. And that's the point I want to put across is, yes, the numbers are smaller in kids than in adults, but they're not small. This is something that wasn't in existence, you know, 50,000 kids that would not have been in the hospital otherwise. Uh, and it's very traumatic for the parents and families. And so it really does mm. argue for vaccination across the board. It's so well, it's so well put. And, uh, and I think two things when I listen to you say it, I think one, um, it, it's, it absolutely has to be taken seriously from every parent. And I would say also parents, newer parents especially, have to understand that um, kids have always been at, you know, they parents feel like their kids are at risk for everything. We've got friends that are a new parent of a 15-month-old boy, and they were talking about COVID. And I said, yeah, it's, it's something I'd be concerned about. But I'd tell you, I go, there's tons of times when you bring your kid into a walk-in clinic with a boiling fever or there's a terrible ear infection or he's barking like a seal for six days. I said, we did that with each of our kids probably five times. We rushed them somewhere, an emergency room or a hospital clinic. Like we do have to remember that that is parenting. And I I think we, I think most of us do remember that, but then we've got this new layer of concern. We got to put it all together at the same time, don't we? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is one of the things that can happen with children. But the great thing is that it's, you know, it really is largely preventable now. I mean, for every kid above five, you can prevent it by getting vaccinated by yourself and getting the kid vaccinated. And so it's one of it's one of many things that can happen to your kid. But I think that brings up a good point, which is that when COVID-19 comes into the equation, because of all the precautions you have to do, the different types of testing, the way hospital rooms have to be set up, et cetera, like it's added an an extra wrinkle. And so most kids that come in with, is this COVID-19? They don't have COVID-19, but they get this whole production yeah. around them at huge cost and sort of trauma to them because it adds that. So it's added a layer of complexity to taking care of kids uh, who still come in with all the usual cold and proof and other things. Interestingly, I'll tell you that 
COVID-19 can cause croup. So I saw a kid in the ICU that had classic croup. And so the dad was quite angry because he's like, what? I, this kid has had croup for many years and it's just croup again. And why are you going on about COVID-19? Um, and he didn't test positive for any of the viruses that typically cause croup, but he did test positive for COVID-19. And so I looked it up and it turns out there's many case reports of COVID-19 causing croup. So COVID-19 does weird things too. And it, it, that's what's made it interesting from a medical standpoint, but also really challenging. There's Dr. Chandy John uh, joining us from the Ryan White Professor of Pediatrics. A great pleasure to have him on. If you missed some of that, we'll re-rack a little bit of it uh, after 8.30 this morning. Thanks so much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Please subscribe, please rate, and please share what we're doing. We're glad more of you are listening now more than ever, and we appreciate it. Spread the word, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Live show, of course, Friday, heading into a weekend, 5.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. Thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.